This is Innovating a Bright Future. Hello and welcome back. I'm your host, Avery Krywalt, and I'm excited to be here. This is Innovating a Bright Future, as I already told you in our masterful intro music. And this is the show where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technologies driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. This is going to be an interesting episode. I'll say that right off the bat. This topic is very, very important, and it is also controversial and rife with challenges and obstacles and tension and all of that. Today, we're talking about climate justice. Climate justice is a pretty general term that, on the simplest level, links climate action with other social issues and seeks to make climate action a more mutually beneficial course of action that works to impact these social issues in positive ways instead of repeating the mistakes of our past. Like I said, it's a challenging topic and something that I'm definitely not qualified to give a course on, but I do want to delve into. This is to teach myself as well as share my learnings with you. I made this disclaimer on the short note about this topic in the collective action episode, but I want to do it again at the beginning of this episode as well. This conversation is going to touch on a variety of topics. We're going to talk about race, gender, discrimination, indigenous oppression, and prejudice most of all on the systemic scale. I want to be absolutely clear, I have not faced nearly the adversity that many others have faced, and continue to face to this day. I have very little first-hand experience with many of the problems we will discuss in this episode. I'm learning, as with the rest of this show, as I make these episodes. It's all a learning experience. This episode was disproportionately difficult to make because of my lack of personal experience, as well as the vast wealth of stories and experiences that I've tried to take into account. I fully accept that I will never fully understand the issues faced by others, but I am doing my best to understand and doing my best to continue learning. In keeping with that, I want to hear from you. If you have something to say about this topic, please reach out via any of the links to our social media channels in the show notes. I want to continue learning more, and the way to do that is to listen, so that's what I'm going to do. At the same time, I want to ask for a little bit of leniency. I will get something wrong in this episode. I guarantee it. It's bound to happen. So if I do, I would love to hear from you about it. But be nice, I'm just another person trying to figure everything out. I figured we should possibly ease into it for the sake of all of our sanities, so we're going to start with a topic that is by no means less important or even easier to deal with, but maybe a bit easier for me to understand and discuss. Let's start with a couple of ideas from past bonus episodes and stitch them together. Collective action, electrification, and this week's topic, justice. This is still a huge talking point of the Sunrise Movement, which we discussed in our first bonus. It's one of the most important pillars of the Green New Deal concept, and it's one of the hot-button topics being discussed across the world as we move towards sustainability and renewable energy on a global scale. We're talking about a just transition. A just transition basically means making sure that as we move away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy, which of course is a trickle-down effect, impacting transportation, consumer products, agriculture, and everything else you can imagine, we need to take care of those who feel the negative impacts of that transition. The most notable and obvious of these individuals is those who work in the field of fossil fuels. Believe me, there are lots of them. I'm willing to bet that you listening to this right now know someone who is in the energy industry in some way. Which means that, <clears throat> because we've left the problem so long, 
Now we have to spring all out towards that transition in order to make it on time, and a lot of people are going to be displaced from jobs very quickly. It also happens that this issue, specifically job loss and economic instability, is one of the biggest concerns with the transition to renewables and sustainable practices. Not only is everyone worried about robots taking jobs away, now we have to worry about robots with solar panels taking away all the jobs and the money. The horror. And I will be the first one to say the concept of a just transition is great. It's essential, actually. But it won't be easy. Just like nothing we do will be easy in the climate space. Easy isn't the expectation, but it's still absolutely essential that we make it happen. The important part is it isn't impossible. Again, just like everything else. The important part is it isn't impossible. It will be difficult. It is difficult, because it's an issue that's already in play. But it's doable, and we have to do it. We have to make sure that those who lose jobs because there simply isn't demand for fossil fuel employees anymore can find new jobs. And not just entry-level positions either, but jobs that can provide the same economic stability that they had previously. There are other aspects to this as well. Land will be needed to build out new infrastructure, so landowners will have to be properly compensated for any new developments. Stranded assets are also relevant to the discussion of a just transition. Historically, fossil fuel companies have been awful at cleaning up their messes when they're done. Mines are often left partially recovered, but otherwise largely left untouched. Oil and gas equipment and machinery frequently gets left behind at abandoned sites for the public or private actors to take care of on their own. These situations can be really unfortunate for those who are left to deal with the mess. Landowners unsure what to do with all these decommissioned oil well sites. And of course, the potential dangers that come with improperly sealed well sites. They can leak harmful vapors, both for humans and the environment. There's also the possibility that chemicals can leach into the soil and damage important bacteria and microbes that maintain soil health and allow plant life to thrive. The Green New Deal from the Sunrise Movement, as linked in the show notes, approaches the problem of climate justice from a variety of angles. If you read the resolution, you'll find that some of the points seem relatively unrelated to climate change directly, and these are the points related to climate justice. In particular for this example, the resolution states the need to create millions of high-paying jobs that promote economic and social prosperity for all who live in the U.S. This is in response to years of wage stagnation, which is mentioned in the resolution as one of the problems to be solved as well as the inevitable economic disruption that will be caused by the decline of the fossil fuel industry. Another part of the resolution states the need for universal provision of clean air and water, climate and community resiliency, healthy food, access to nature, and a sustainable environment. This point specifically demonstrates the ethos of climate justice perfectly. It connects climate change to other social issues, both historic and modern. It emphasizes the importance of that relationship and resolves to not only fix climate change by any means possible, but to do so with the lives and livelihoods of the world's citizens in mind. In resolving to provide training, expertise, resources, and high-quality education specifically to the vulnerable frontline communities, the Green New Deal makes clear that this is about justice, not only climate change. It's about righting the wrongs of the past while solving climate change and it's about preventing further harm and alienation of communities that have already been, and continually will be, negatively impacted both by the direct results of climate change and the policies that can harm their communities. 
At the UN COP26, which we did a bonus episode on in Season 2, alongside many other side agreements, a group of primarily Western countries agreed to a declaration on supporting the considerations for a just transition internationally. This covers many of the points of climate justice explicitly, recognizing that climate change is not only a technological or political issue, but also a deeply personal and societal one. While much more detailed, this declaration is summarized as such. The major points include support for workers in the transition to a new job, support for social dialogue and stakeholder engagement, economic strategies, local inclusive and decent work, supply chains, and accurate and frequent Paris Agreement reporting. The goal is to make sure that those who have seen economic prosperity are not disillusioned by the transition because of personal loss, because we have to continue gaining more support for climate action, not pushing people and communities away. At the same time, injecting historically impoverished and oppressed communities, especially communities of color, with the opportunity that accompanies a green economy by providing well-paying jobs and encouraging economic freedom and development. Another very challenging aspect of climate justice, which is more environmental justice, not confined to climate change, is the role of indigenous peoples. First things first, we have to remember that indigenous peoples were not only the inhabitants, but most importantly, the caretakers of our land for centuries before they were settled by European colonists. I should note for this point, I will talk mostly about North America, simply for a personal lack of knowledge about indigenous peoples of other places. This meant that indigenous peoples didn't think of our planet as something to exploit or take from. It was a living organism that deserved reverence and respect and stewardship. Because of those cultural and even religious beliefs, indigenous peoples lived in a way that wasn't named at the time, but what has become possibly the buzzword of the decade, sustainably. When settlers first came to North America, and even in the beginning of Icelandic society, as we discussed with Stefan, it wasn't far from sustainability either. Sure, homesteads and farms were established that permanently changed the landscape, trading posts and cattle gained popularity, which was a step in the wrong direction, and hunting and poaching became an economic driver like no other. Okay, alright, maybe they weren't all that sustainable. They didn't hold the earth in the same respect as indigenous peoples, and they sure didn't feel the same responsibility for environmental stewardship. But, for the most part, homesteaders sought to live in a self-sustaining manner. They didn't give back like indigenous peoples did, but they also didn't try and drain the planet dry for their own causes. That changed as mining became increasingly prevalent, alongside ever more destructive hunting and poaching practices, along with habitat destruction, larger and more centralized farms, and perhaps worst of all for sustainability, the Industrial Revolution. A lot changed very quickly in the days of the early settlers, and the indigenous peoples were largely left out. While the crimes against indigenous peoples is not a rabbit hole I should start talking about in depth, or this will end up being ours, indigenous peoples had to fight to preserve their language, cultures, religious beliefs, and livelihoods, hoping not to get run over or pushed out of the way by the progress of settlers. Indigenous methods of environmental stewardship were largely ignored in favor of more exploitative modern efforts. Now, it's becoming clear that maybe taking a look at indigenous environmental stewardship is something we should do. Just maybe. It's not like they had it figured out once already, or anything like that. Alongside everything that we need to relearn from indigenous peoples, 
is the problem of everything we still owe to those who came before. In the process of assimilation and cultural genocide and everything else that came with it, settlers claimed land that was important or even sacred to indigenous tribes and communities. Ever since, indigenous communities have fought for land and water rights that have been promised and then forgotten countless times. Indigenous communities have so much to teach to the modern climate movement, and being one of the most aggressive communities to push for climate action, indigenous peoples will play a pivotal role in the climate movement. There is so much work to be done to repair the damage to indigenous communities that has been ongoing for literal centuries, which is why the more recent events in Canada especially are somewhat encouraging. We can't fix the trust that has been broken, but we can and will eventually be able to forge new relationships in trust and solidarity with indigenous peoples. So the question that the climate movement has to answer is how we move towards a future with that all-important progress while ensuring justice for indigenous peoples. Well, we're going to talk more about solutions closer to the end of this episode, but it will be common to most of these climate justice issues that it's difficult to say exactly what the solution is. That's not to say there aren't any, but these are deeply ingrained systemic problems that require systemic changes. I definitely do not have all the possible answers. Keep in mind I'm doing my best here, but I don't know everything, and these large-scale issues are difficult to find solutions to, even for experienced experts in the field, never mind relatively uninformed podcast hosts. Which means, I'm sure my most common call to action, continued discussions, talking about the issues, coupled with collective action, banding together and utilizing social, political, and climate action to make change on the systemic scale. Climate justice is also an international issue. We can't forget that. We must always remember that climate action must be present on every level of government, including climate justice. And again, this topic is an extremely complex one, and something which I will probably never fully understand, because international politics are inherently confusing. Global climate justice is important because it is the unity of nations. So much more can be accomplished by countries working together across borders than countries who are solely worried about their own. Climate change is a global problem, and as such requires a global solution. Addressing only one country, or even one continent, is not enough. We have to take on this issue as one global community, in spirit at least. This means equity between nations when it comes to climate targets, reparations, and foreign aid. What does all of that mean? All the countries around the world are not equal. Some countries have more natural resources, some have less. Some countries were the beneficiaries of colonialism, and some were the colonized. These inequalities between nations on the global scale is something we must address in order to meet our climate goals and develop our world into the world we want it to be. Equity is how we address these inequalities, and it is not equality. Because they are unequal to begin with, they must not be treated equally in climate discussions. They must be treated with equity, with fairness, under the consideration of the entire context. Taking into account the multitude of factors at play, and then determining the best outcome to match the relative outcome of another country is equity. So for two countries with the exact same resources, but one country has a much lower population, the equitable climate solution would be to have the country with a lower population have lower emissions. This, of course, gets more complicated when resources and industry are considered. 
If two countries have the same population, but one country has far greater emissions because it's more industrialized and produces more goods, who receives more lenience on emissions? The more industrialized country because they are providers? Or should the less fruitful country be given more lenience so that they can develop better infrastructure and become a better producer of goods? I really don't know the answer, but I imagine it would be a complex calculation dependent on a variety of factors. Climate justice is also relevant to the relation between developed and developing countries. As a general but not universal rule, developing countries are more likely to feel the worst and most immediate impacts of climate change. This is in large part due to the fact that developing countries have less infrastructure to support them when facing a crisis. Energy infrastructure is less reliable, food is more scarce, clean water is often a problem, and they have less access to support programs in the event of a disaster. One of the most pressing issues that has risen up in the recent climate talks is reparations for climate damages. Developing nations are already being affected by the preliminary signs of a changing climate. It's costing money, and it's costing lives. But the thing is, if you take a brief glance at the emissions per country, especially per capita, you'll see pretty quick that those being affected by climate change the most are not the ones causing it. Hence, this is one of the biggest climate justice issues. How can developing countries hope to catch up to developed countries and put adequate climate action into place if they're already being hit by impacts they didn't cause and no one else is paying for? On top of all that, they're already lacking in advantages that other countries have had for the last two centuries. There are already some international aid programs in place for developed countries to send funds, supplies, and expertise to developing nations in the hopes of preventing and preparing for climate events. The decision being debated now is whether climate reparations should be put in place. Climate reparations are when wealthier nations, who have been the lead causes of climate change for decades now, should pay poorer, less developed countries for the damages caused by climate change. The debate is heated, obviously, as many people don't want to see their money sent to another country. But from a climate justice perspective, this is the only equitable way to deal with such an international problem. I mean, layup of an analogy here, if your neighbor was hosting a bonfire and it burnt your lawn to a crisp, but their lawn is fine because they knew they were having a bonfire and could prepare for it, you would definitely expect them to pay for damages. To be accurate, that analogy would probably look a little more like you, sitting in the middle of a grass field, while your neighbor puts on a high-octane pyrotechnics performance, complete with flamethrowers and great rings of fire. But that isn't the point. The point is, each country does not contribute equally to climate change, and each country does not have the same capacity to prevent climate change. Climate justice says that those who contribute highly should also prevent as much as they can, providing aid to less developed countries as much as possible to prevent future emissions. It's about fairness, but even if you don't believe in fairness, it just makes sense for developed countries to do what they can to aid in the development of others. 50 or 100 years ago, all the current richest nations in the world were in the exact same place as developing countries are today. If proper care is not taken to learn from the past, the past will repeat itself. If we do not ensure that the countries developing today are doing so in a sustainable fashion that prioritizes renewable energy and equitable infrastructure, then we prolong the issue. It's just going to keep going. If rich nations prioritize only themselves, 
leaving developing nations to develop on their own, there is a good chance that by the time the rich nations have decarbonized the best they can, the rest of the world will have built up more than enough fossil fuel-based systems to continue contributing to climate change, completely erasing any chance of avoiding a climate catastrophe. That is, of course, not a surety, but a little bit of help from the richest countries in the world can ensure that every country has the resources and support required to develop in a sustainable way. It's a big deal, and it's understandable that it's a hot debate, but climate justice is essential to our future, and if we don't take equity into proper account, it will be much more difficult to make progress as one united planet. The final topic that we're going to touch on in terms of climate justice is in reference to communities and people of color in developed nations. Let's start with the basics on this one. Historically, and in modern society, people of color are discriminated against because of their race or perceived race. This is a fact, and one that we cannot overlook, ignore, or discount. To do so would be gross negligence of an extremely impactful social issue that has plagued Western society especially for centuries. We must also recognize racial inequality in its modern iteration, discriminatory business practices, microaggressions, racist policies in government and economic sectors. The list goes on. And of course, we can't forget that blatant racism is still present today, whether it's prominent or not. We haven't fixed this one, and I would argue from my perspective, we've done a pretty terrible job of even beginning to fix it so far. One of the most important aspects of this particular problem is simple availability of positions of power. Systemic racism is a powerful force. Even though a company may appear to be as inclusive as possible in their policy, in practice, people of color are disproportionately poorly represented in positions of power. This trend is true for both government and corporate positions. This is, of course, a trickle-down effect. If you have no one representing you on the decision-making level, the decisions being made are probably not going to account for you very well. That's what's been happening to communities of color across Canada and the rest of the world. They are not proportionately represented, and they are not given a voice in urban development decisions. As such, those decisions disproportionately affect communities of color in harmful ways. Somewhat ironically, according to the U.S. Department of Energy, communities of color are more likely to have harmful fossil fuel plants and industries built near their homes, but are also more likely to have to deal with an inadequate or unreliable energy supply. Infrastructure in communities of color is typically underfunded compared to white areas, and these communities do not receive the necessary support to maintain and develop. Not only are people of color affected by injustices in development and infrastructure near their homes, but POCs also face gatekeeping in employment, most of all the technology industry. If I were to generalize the issue of climate justice in relation to people of color, I would have to basically say there hasn't been a whole lot of justice in the past, and we need to do a whole lot better if we want to have any hope of solving the climate crisis in time. There are so many sub-issues and sub-sub-issues in this category of communities of color. I'm not even kidding when I say that there is a very select few things that we have done right in this category. As Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, previous host of How to Save a Planet, once said, and I'm paraphrasing, can we please solve racism so that we can focus on this climate change thing? We simply do not have a chance to make climate action matter unless we unite together as a global, international community of human beings. It will take all of us, 
We need unity, and we need climate justice more than ever. Also, go listen to How to Save a Planet. It's a great show. Ayana, the person I quoted, is a truly inspiring figure. Ayana is a black woman absolutely unstoppable in the climate space, co-founder of How to Save a Planet, the Urban Ocean Lab, and the All We Can Save project. Look her up and just take a look at some of the stuff she's working on, if you want to be impressed. Anyways, climate justice is an infinitely complex issue, and the issues that I've outlined here are only the most obvious and arguably the easiest to do something about. It's all systemic. That's what this episode has been about. There are systems in place, or legacies of past systems, that are unjust, discriminatory, and racist. Before we attempt to reinvent our social systems along with taking climate action, we have to dismantle and learn from these oppressive systems. If we can't do that, then there is no hope of uniting under a climate agenda. If we can't put climate justice at the forefront now, then we will not fix any of the social issues that have been integral to the function of our society for so long. Which begs the question, what do we do? Fortunately for you, you just took the first step. Not to say that this podcast is essential to climate justice, that's not what I mean. Learning about injustice, historic and modern, and learning how that relates to climate change and most of all climate justice, is the first essential step. By just learning about these issues, you begin to become more conscious of them in your everyday life, and more capable of reacting to them and making your own change. Being aware, paying attention to the interactions and events around you, being conscious of who your representatives are and how well they represent the actual population, engaging in the democratic process and encouraging others to do the same, advocating for justice reforms in the policy of all governments and all corporations. These are all things you can do just by being present and engaged with the world around you. Advocating for climate justice means holding companies and governments accountable by voting and voting with your dollar when it comes to business. Trusting and supporting international institutions that protect human rights and support developing nations is one way that you can make an impact on the global scale. Be involved, be engaged, take action in your community, whether that means your municipality or your parliament. The bottom line is, climate justice is a systemic problem, with systemic solutions, and systemic change is damn hard. So do what you can, and most of all, get involved with others. See what you can do together. Collective action. Yep, that's right. There is no silver bullet, especially for a problem that is so prominent in every facet of human life on Earth. But there are effective solutions that can be achieved if we make them a priority. That was a long one, and a heavy one, and I didn't even get into the thick of it. I made this episode because this topic is so important to climate action at every level, and it's important to have an understanding of at least the most basic problems associated with climate justice. That said, I really don't have a solid answer for this one, because climate justice is so multifaceted and all-encompassing at the same time. Therefore, the solutions are also multifaceted and all-encompassing. It takes a lot of people doing a lot of things at every level to solve this problem. It takes diligence and perseverance, two qualities that those facing injustice have had to have to endure that injustice. Well now we have to use those qualities to fix the root problems, instead of the oppressed just enduring. I hope you learned something from this episode, and if you have anything that you want to discuss further, please do not hesitate to reach out using the show notes. I don't have much else to say on this one. It's a deep topic with nearly infinite subtopics for you to delve into if you choose. 
You can start with the links in the show notes, but there are plenty of other sites and institutions that specialize in this topic, and you can find a lot of information on reliable websites. So that's where I'm going to leave it, incomplete, a brief exploration of climate justice, but I did my best, and I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. Take care of yourselves, get involved in climate action, I'll see you next time. Stay innovative.